Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This Friday was uh, Cameron Brooks's birthday. He told me he turned 30 years old. And when he told me that, I lit up and I said, I turned 30 in the year 2000. And afterwards, Lori said, don't say things like that. It just makes you seem old. And uh, I was kind of excited because my whole life I've dreamed of being an old man and I'm getting there. That's exciting. But uh, on the other hand, I, I took what she was saying to heart. I feel young on the inside. I have to be a little bit young because as I was explaining to adults in Sunday school, I don't have kids. So in order to understand how to give them good advice on parenting, (laughs) I have to get in touch with what it was like for me as a child being parented. And I know things have changed a lot. Things were different back then. Uh, My parents didn't have software so they could track me everywhere I went. I also didn't take pictures of myself misbehaving and post them on the internet every time I did bad things. It was a different time. It was tougher, but maybe in a way it was simpler too, at least for my parents, I'd like to think. They only seemed to have one concern as far as I was concerned. It was when they sent me off to school, uh, they wanted to keep me away from the bad kids. You can relate to that. Maybe your parents had similar concerns. Maybe you as a parent have the same. You don't want your kid mixing with the bad kids. Question is, how do you know which kids are the bad kids? Well, that was easy because the bad kids used bad words. The bad kids were the ones who used the bad words. Now, without apps and without social media, how could my parents know that I was hanging out with the bad kids? It was actually pretty simple because I started using bad words too. That's how that works. You hang out with the bad kids, the bad kids use bad words. You hang out long enough, you use bad words too, and you give the game away. As a grown-up, though, we come to realize things aren't as simple as they seemed when we were kids. As a grown-up, I now realize not everyone who uses bad words is a bad person. And more importantly, not everyone who doesn't is a good person. Of course, when you grow up, you also realize that that distinction between the good people and the bad people is actually misleading, that it's a lot more complicated than that. Jesus' words here can be understood on two levels. You might say there's two things that he's teaching. I'm not saying there's, there's like a... A reading of Jesus' words that's wrong and a reading that's right, but there's a reading of the words that's right but doesn't go far enough, and we have to have this second, deeper understanding to fully unpack what it is that Jesus is saying here. What he's saying has to do with our words. So we're going to look at both levels, like what Jesus is saying on the surface about our words, but also the point that he's making in a deeper sense about those words. And along the way, hopefully, we'll also have some insight into the method of Jesus as well. Not just the message, but the method, like why he sets us up 
the way that he does here. Because there's a sense in which what Jesus is doing here is he's showing us the tip of an iceberg and saying, wow, watch out for the tip of the iceberg. But then he's also calling attention to the fact that there's something underneath that's an even bigger problem. But let's start on the surface. Let's start with the lesson that that hopefully is the obvious one as we read Jesus' words. It's a lesson that we could put in the, the words of your mom. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Be careful what you say. Now remember in context, as we pick back up with Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has just been warning the Pharisees about the sin of blasphemy, specifically blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy is a speech sin, right? It's a sin that you commit with your words. They are verbally condemning Jesus. They are in danger of verbally condemning the work of the Spirit, And by that word of condemnation, the Pharisees would condemn themselves. Jesus' words here follow on the heels of that warning. He's still addressing this tendency of the Pharisees to speak these condemnations that actually indict themselves. He calls them a brood of vipers. They're, They're little vipers. They're the children of their father, Satan, the the great serpent. Now, you might object to the way that Jesus calls them out and say that it's unfair for him to judge them based on their words. You can't just judge people by what they say, Jesus. People say all kinds of stupid things without really meaning them. But actually, in this case, that's not true. Jesus is saying there's a connection between what they say and who they are and what they are. This isn't a peremptory judgment. They're speaking words of condemnation, but these words come from hearts that are fixed on evil. You might think, if we start judging people based on what they say, if we start condemning people for the stupid things that come out of their mouths, then, then who won't be condemned? Who won't be judged? Who indeed? That exactly is the question. That is the reality that Jesus is calling our attention to. Jesus takes speech seriously even if we don't. Look at the way that he speaks here in this passage. He says, how can you speak good when you are evil? The the framing of their hearts precludes the thought that they could speak things that are good. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. He doesn't see these words as meaningless, as not indicative of the true intent of their speakers, just the opposite. He sees them as an expression, an overflowing of the attitude of the heart. He says people will give account of every careless word that they speak. Even sins of speech, careless words, will be called to account, he says. By your words you will be justified or condemned. So it's pretty obvious there that the way that we see speech is different 
from the way that Jesus does. If anything, when we see people saying things that they shouldn't say or misspeaking, people saying things and being attacked for them or, or, or being judged for them that we think isn't fair, doesn't do justice to who they really are, we go to their defense. Right? We say, hey, hey, no, no. Don't jump to conclusions. Just because they said some wrong thing doesn't mean that they truly believe those things. But Jesus places a great importance on the things that we say. And I think we should learn from him the importance of what we say and not give ourselves an excuse to just shoot our mouths off and say it doesn't matter what we say. Jesus says, by your words, you will be justified or condemned. That's a surface reading, and and we could stop there. That could be the end of the sermon, more or less. Don't get excited, it's not. But uh, we could just go into some practical application, and if we wanted to do that, uh, the Apostle James would really help us out. If you flip over to the book of James, James gives you some really good points on how to watch your mouth. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In James chapter 1, 19. That's a good instruction for us. You should listen more than you talk. If you want to avoid saying things that condemn you, then maybe don't talk so much. Maybe listen before you speak. Maybe be careful about the words of condemnation and judgment that you utter on other people. Be slow to speak, slow to anger. Don't, don't be one of those people as a hair trigger is always ready to be outraged at other people for what they've done, because in those words you speak, you speak your own condemnation. James would say, if you keep reading in chapter 1, you should bridle your tongue. Bridle it, in other words, be the master of it. Not, not tear it out, not uh, uh, cinch it down so that you never speak again, take a vow of silence, but discipline your tongue like you would discipline any other part of you, right? Because it's not what goes in that defiles you, Jesus says, it's what comes out. So exercise control over what comes out. Otherwise, James says, you deceive your heart and your religion is worthless. So again, he follows Jesus' lead. You claim to be a religious person, but you don't guard your mouth. You don't watch what you say. That religion is worthless because he says in chapter 3 of James, the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. So much damage that we do with our speech. Not many of you are violent people. Not many of you go around beating people up physically. As far as I know, not many of you are murderers. Not many of you lay in wait and ambush people, to my knowledge. But with your mouths, you have beaten people up. With your mouths, you've killed people. You've destroyed them. You've unleashed a world of unrighteousness on the people around you because you haven't done what James says to do. That's true. That's important. You should follow the example of the psalmist in Psalm 141 and set a guard on your mouth. If you go and look at that, Psalm 141, you should go back and look in verse 3. Set a guard, it says, But it doesn't say, you set a guard. It's a prayer. 
Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. For a person who seeks to follow after Christ and to take seriously what he says here, we should be people praying this prayer. Guard our lips, O Lord. Help us not to speak as we shouldn't. Help us to say what we should and not to say what we should not. Again, watch your mouth. That's the surface. It's not unimportant, but it's not the deepest thing that Jesus has to say here. You might say this is a sanctification lesson, and it's valuable to us in the context of sanctification. But what Jesus is saying goes a little deeper than that, because watching your mouth, as good as it is, is not enough. It's not a misreading of what Jesus is saying. If our takeaway is, let's guard our tongues. But we're not getting everything that he has to say to us here. The deepest point is this. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. That's the deeper lesson. Bad fruit comes from bad trees. So Jesus has given us another tree metaphor. We talked about trees as a spiritual metaphor on Christmas Day, and now Jesus is is doing it again. In fact, he's not just doing it again, but he's returning to a metaphor that he's already given us in Matthew's Gospel. If you can remember back in Matthew chapter 7, he spoke this way before. This is in Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. He's warning people about false prophets, and he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's judgment. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So now Jesus in Matthew 12 returns to this idea and he expands it a little bit. In Matthew 7, the implication is you will know people by their deeds. The lives they live will reveal their hearts. But now he's expanding that to include even speech. What they do, but also what they say, reveals what they are inside. If you want a a succinct way of summing up this concept, here it is. As the fruit reveals the tree, so the speech reveals the heart. As the fruit reveals the tree, so the speech reveals the heart. What does that mean? F. Scott Fitzgerald, when he was explaining how to write good stories, used to say, action is character. If you write a story... And all you do is try to get inside the mind of the character and you say, oh, he was this kind of person and he felt this way. That's, that's not how you do it. Instead, you show what they do. You show their actions. You show the things that they accomplish in the world and you show the things that they say, which is why like good 20th century modern fiction consists of descriptions of characters' actions and records of their dialogue, and you don't go into their minds and just tell the reader who they are. You show who they are through that expression. Action is character. Or to put it more precisely, like take it out of the world of fiction into the world of human psychology, we might say action 
reveals character. Like it's not as simple as saying we are what we do, but it is true that what we do reveals what we are. Like if you see a tree and you pick the fruit and you eat it and it's spoiled, you don't say to yourself, well, I don't think the tree meant it. I don't think the tree intended this. I think the rotten fruit reveals the character of the tree. There's something wrong with the tree. That's why it's bearing this fruit. In the same way, you don't hear a person say, well, I reject Jesus. And see them live a life of rejection and tell yourself, well, they don't really mean it. But the words reveal the heart of the person. In the same way, if a person says, I believe in Jesus, they profess faith in Jesus, and their life has evidence of, of the fruit of the Spirit, you don't look at that person and say, well, do they really mean it, though? Are they serious? Because they're producing the fruit that comes from the tree of faith. You take that for granted. Now, if you take this idea of the connection between actions and the heart, and you apply it to the Pharisees that Jesus is speaking to, basically, the point is this, that Judging these men according to their evil speech is not an unfair leap because their speech is a true representation of their inner condition. Right? Their condemnation of Jesus isn't flippant. It reveals actually the hardness of their hearts. If they condemn the Spirit with their words, then we can be sure that their hearts are oriented towards evil. But there's also a larger point that we could make if we apply this not just to the Pharisees, but apply it to ourselves, apply it to all human beings who have a tendency to be this way. There's a French movie from the mid-1990s called Ridicule. You can imagine when I saw there's a movie called Ridicule coming out, I bought tickets immediately, hoping to hone the art of ridicule a little bit. Well, it's set in the 1700s, and there's this scene that's always stuck in my mind. I don't remember a lot about this movie, but I remember this one scene where this pastor is preaching a sermon. It's before like all these royal like kings and princes and stuff, and he's doing this incredible sort of very uh, Enlightenment-era rationalist sermon where he is proving the existence of God. And the camera comes in right at the end, at his rousing conclusion, where he's saying, as you can see, I have now logically proven that there is a God. And you can see the audience is astonished. Their eyes are huge. Their jaws are hanging open. They've never seen it so clearly before that there could be no doubt that God is real. And the pastor sees their reaction and is thrilled by it. And as they sort of cheer him, he's levied up by their praise, and, and in his exuberance says, and if you come back next week, I will show you logically that God does not exist. And everyone suddenly stops and is appalled and horrified. And he sputters and tries to say, oh, I'm joking, I'm joking, but it's too late because he sacrificed the admiration of the people because in his careless speech, he's revealed his heart. They realize that what he just said to them that seemed so compelling, he doesn't actually believe. Because if he had, he could never have said those words. We do this kind of thing all the time. We shoot our mouths off without thinking. We say things, and then we suffer the consequences. Whether it's celebrity meltdowns, Karen videos on YouTube, 
Constantly, people are saying stuff that destroys their lives. They lose their heads. They get themselves into trouble through what Jesus calls careless words. Nobody wants to be judged based on their careless words, their unguarded speech. Yet Jesus says we will give account for every careless word spoken. And if you don't pay for it now, you will pay for it when you're before the throne of God. Those words may be ill-considered, but we take them seriously. The reason we react to them the way that we do is not the words themselves, but because we tell ourselves that you wouldn't say something like that if you didn't believe it. Or you could never say that if you actually believed this. Your words reveal your heart. Sometimes when we talk without thinking, we say exactly what we mean. That's the reality that Jesus puts his finger on. And that means it's not enough to watch your mouth because those evil words proceed from an evil heart. Even if I could shut my mouth and never say the thing that would reveal my inner condition, my inner condition would not change. It would only be hidden. If it's true that my words and my actions are a product of my heart, then there's something wrong, not just with my speech, but with my heart. That means the solution can't be as simple as just stop doing the bad things or stop saying the bad things. I cannot simply change my behavior or reform myself any more than a bad tree can decide one day to start bearing good fruit for a change. Behavior modification, in other words, can never save you. You can lop off the tip of the iceberg, but the iceberg is still there underneath the surface. The iceberg doesn't go away, it's just concealed, which, if anything, makes it more dangerous. The only hope is not a change of behavior, but a change of heart. Only a good tree will bring forth good fruit. Only a righteous heart will bring forth righteous words and deeds. But you can't change your heart. Only the Spirit can do that. The Spirit changes hearts. So now we're getting into the deeper things that Jesus is pointing to here. And it gives an indication of Jesus' method. I mean, I've said already that that looking at the surface is not a misreading, but there is a misreading of Jesus' words that people could naturally go to, and it has to do with that distinction between good people and bad people. The way Jesus talks, you know, a good person brings forth good, an evil person brings forth evil. That suggests there are two kinds of people in this world, the good people and the evil people. The good people do good things, and the evil people do evil things. What you do depends on what kind of person you are. And there's going to be a day of judgment that's going to separate the good people from the evil people, and all the good people are looking forward to that. People who easily divide the world up, who divide humanity up between the good people and the bad people, typically do two things. They always see themselves as good people, and generously, they extend that to most people. They don't just say, I'm a good person and most of you are bad people. Typically, they'll say, I'm a good person and honestly, most people are good people. 
it's just a few rotten apples. It's just a few evil people. There's a couple of Hitlers running around, and they're the problem. But most of us are basically good. And what a comfort it would be if they were right. Because if they were right, then the human problem would be so much easier to solve. We could do it. We good people could just band together, figure out who the bad people are and get rid of them. And then the problem of evil would be solved. The problem is that the good tree is the righteous tree. And there is none who is righteous. No, not one. There is no alliance of good people that can band together to take out the bad people because the bad people are here. They're us. It's not just the Pharisees who have this problem. It's us as well. And that's the key to Jesus' method. That's the insight into what he's doing. His warning to the Pharisees, it starts out as a comfort to you because you're not a Pharisee. When he says, you brood of vipers, you're like, yeah, Jesus, get them. They are. They're very snake-like. I've noticed that about Pharisees. It's one of the reasons I personally don't care for Pharisees. Jesus is right to go after those people. They do say things that condemn them. They should be condemned. They're bad people. It's like if Jesus were going around saying, uh, hey, beware, you Nazis. You're going to answer for your evil words because you have evil hearts. And we would cheer at that. Say, yeah, take that, you fascists. But then, after you were cheering, you might start asking yourself, okay, but what about me? If, if their evil comes from their evil hearts, where do the bad things that I do originate? I'm a good person. How is it possible for me also to produce this bad fruit? And then the same judgment that you were just cheering for condemns you. In other words, if you take what Jesus says seriously, then you come to the realization that you too are guilty. And if you take that seriously, you realize that like them, you are without hope. Because it means the evil that you do is not accidental. The evil that you do is not done in spite of the fact that you're a good person. It's that bad trees bear bad fruits. And your problem is the same as theirs. It's not accidental. It's your nature. The good news is that God's grace restores fallen nature. That's the good news that Jesus is setting us up for here. If you hear these words and you think, I'm going to be judged on every bad thing I've said, on every terrible thing that I've done, yes! And wouldn't it be nice if when that happens, instead of being held to account for your actions, you could be judged on his instead? What if Jesus' actions, his deeds, and his words were counted as yours on that day? That's what grace promises. Grace promises to substitute the righteousness of Christ for yours. And more than that, through the gift of the Spirit, to grow a seed of righteousness, to renew the, the bad tree that you are and make you into a righteous branch. Listen to these words of hope. These come from Her Herman Bavink, 
his uh, essay, The Catholicity of Christianity in the Church. He writes, Sin has corrupted much, in fact, everything. The guilt of human sin is immeasurable. The pollution that always accompanies it penetrates every structure of humanity and the world. Nonetheless, sin does not dominate and corrupt without God's abundant grace in Christ triumphing even more. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. It is able to restore everything. We need not, indeed, we must not despair of anyone or anything. The gospel is a joyful tiding, not only for the individual person, but also for humanity, for the family, for society, for the state, for art and science, for the entire cosmos, for the whole groaning creation. The good news of the gospel is that restoration. We cannot change who we are. We cannot change what we are, but by God's grace, God changes who we are. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The sobering reality is that we cannot change ourselves. The gracious realization is that we don't have to that that is exactly what it is that Christ offers us in the gospel. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.